Good morning, sinners. I'm glad you're all here. Wonderful snow we're having, is it not? Yeah, for some, maybe not for others. Well, I tried. It's, uh, it's kind of crazy, I would think, where we find ourselves now. It's, uh, it's December already. Of course, obviously, some of you are just frozen numb, I think, more than anything else, but that's okay. Christmas is just around the corner. You know, sometimes it's the busyness of the season, and I confess it's, it's hard to slow down personally, truly meditate on the wonder of it all, and add to that, to be really honest, pastoral confessions, I'm more of an Easter guy than I am a Christmas guy, and I think maybe because that is all, for me, it's about the commercialism uh, that drives me a little bit nuts. And so, of course, when we think about Christmas, most people will tell you, it's about presents, it's about Santa, lights and trees, or days off from work or school. And then we get a little bit more detailed and we ask people questions about the Christmas story. And then I actually think it's really easy for many to get sidetracked. It was Angus Reid did a poll on Canadians not too long ago. He found out that 69% agree that Christmas has lost its meaning. Isn't that interesting? Found out that uh, less than 40% actually see Christmas as a religious holiday now. Only 26%, now I actually thought this stat was pretty high, but 26% of Canadians will actually go to a church on Christmas at some point. Many say that Christmas is about doing the bi-yearly trek to church with grandma and the rest of the family, the Christers, if you know what I'm talking about. But it seems that few and fewer will actually state the true meaning of Christmas as celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And so when we take some time and we begin to look into the Christmas story, artists, you know, on the cards have featured the shepherds and their sheep, the wise men and their gifts, right? Camels. Uh, there's an angel choir that we'll often see, even the animals in the stable. Uh, of course, you have Mary and the infant Jesus. But today I want to talk about the Rodney Dangerfield character of the nativity. All right, some of you know who I'm talking about. The one who seems not to get very much respect. And actually, he doesn't get a whole lot of respect, when you think about it, from scholars or preachers. We rarely hear any sermons on this character. And you'll be hard-pressed to find any reference to him in any of our songs that we sing uh, prominently in, in our churches. We, you hardly see any prominent scenes of him depicted, let's say, in stained glass windows in any church. But he plays a prominent role in Jesus' life. The largely forgotten participant in the drama of Christmas is Joseph. And when you think of it, God gave him an important assignment as husband and father and teacher, provider, protector, as well as he was also present at the birth of Jesus. Now in the past, I, I tended to regard Joseph as a minor figure on the whole nativity drama. He seemed more of a spectator, if I could put it that way, at the manger scene. I always pictured him as standing off to one side while the groups of the angels and the shepherds, and then, you know, years later, the, the, the wise men, you know, advanced to the center stage and worship and offer their gifts to the baby. We have very little biographical information from the scriptures about Joseph. He never wrote a book. He traveled only a few miles from his birthplace all of his life. He was out of his 
little country only once that we know of, and that was to take his child to Egypt to preserve his life. He was not well-educated, we presume. He made his living as a carpenter. And what's even crazier is that we never hear him utter a single word anywhere. He has absolutely no speaking parts at all. He eventually drops out of the picture sometimes after the, uh, Jesus, when he turned the age of 12. We never see him again. In all likelihood, he died while Jesus was in his teens. However, in spite of his low profile, I'm going to ask you to reconsider him to be one of the greatest role models of faith and love to be found in the scriptures. Matthew Gospel tells the story of Joseph and how Joseph learns how Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. It's important for Matthew to share with his readers that Joseph was a descendant of Abraham. So when you open up your Bible and you go to Matthew chapter 1, what do you see? You see a genealogy. And Matthew begins to show his readers that, you know, Jacob, uh, Joseph was a descendant of Abraham, chasing through the line of David, uh, Israel's greatest king, and then ending, and he ends it with this, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now again, the genealogy is really important for Matthew's gospel because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he's introducing the Jewish people to the Messiah. This genealogy traces Jesus' lineage back to David, placing him in the line of the ultimate kingship, the Messiah, the anointed one, the heir of David's kingdom, you know, the one who would rule over the kingdom of God forever. But it's not that simple, is it? You know, because Jesus is born of a virgin mother, not of Joseph's seed at all. And so it's pretty clear from what is not said in Matthew that his readers were familiar with the story of the virgin birth that Luke talks about in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. So Luke's account is told from Mary's point of view, while Matthew's account is told from Joseph's perspective. Are you tracking with me? So Matthew just finished giving us a detailed genealogy of Jesus uh, in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. In, in, in verse 1 of that genealogy, Matthew affirms that Jesus was the son of David, which connects his birth with the Davidic covenant, as it's called, as well as pointing out that he was the son of Abraham. So this is really important for Matthew, connecting his birth with the Abrahamic covenant as well. Matthew's most amazing um, assertion is labeling Jesus as Messiah. Now in verse 18, when we jump there, we read, that the birth, uh, we read of the birth of this Messiah. And the same word for birth also occurs in verse 1 of ge the genealogy. And that word is the word Genesis. What you may know can also mean the word beginning. And so this is not only the story of the birth of Jesus, but it's also the beginning of a new era. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is literally the genesis of new things. He notices that, if you take some time, you notice that he just simply states the facts of what his readers already knew. There's no embellishment here. Matthew writes, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. He tells it like it is. And so Joseph and Mary have been joyfully making plans for a wedding. 
Mary's pledged or betrothed, you know, to, to Joseph. Now, Hebrew marriages had two stages, but we understand the first stage is this betrothal of what we would call an engagement period, sort of. However, this, at this time, the, the, the couple's actually considered married. Even though they don't come together as man and wife, they don't have any sexual relations. So this period, even though they're married, is a period of physical separation, but legally married, and it could last as long as a year. And it's far more binding than what we would have with our modern engagements. So this is practice, actually, in order to make sure that the young lady was pure. Whether you like it or not, you know, there it is. And so you see in those days, marriages were arranged by parents. How many of us can say amen that those days are over? When the parents chose a wife for the son, they would pay, obviously, a huge marriage fee uh, to the bride's family. And naturally, the parents paying the price want to make sure that the girl uh, that they, their son was marrying was pure. So they required a year of waiting before you could finalize the marriage to make sure she wasn't impure. And after a year, that was clear. So then they can then consummate their marriage. However, to get out of their marriage, they had to actually then apply for an official divorce. And only a divorce could actually break up that betrothal, right? And if they had been unfaithful to each other, it would possibly then be counted as adultery, which, if they were good practicing Jews, could be punishable by death according to Deuteronomy. There's no doubt that Joseph is older in this scenario, uh, much older than Mary. We're not quite sure, but we know that Mary would have been 13 or 14 years old probably at that time, old enough to bear children. Uh, husbands, on the other hand, had to be established enough to support a wife before they could actually enter into marriage. They were uh, legally uh, obliged to provide food, clothing, and shelter. Uh, interesting thing, at the betrothal stage, they didn't have to do it all by themselves. So in the West, you know, newly married couples, they get their own apartment, they live independently, but not in first century Galilee. No, no Joseph would probably have taken Mary to the house where he lived with his parents and his other siblings. Right? All right, this sounds like fun. And uh, only as his own family grew would then uh, he likely go out and get his own place. But this maybe sounded very chaotic and crowded, but it has its advantages, especially during this time. Because instead of a young couple going out on their own um, in a large household, each member actually contributed to the economy of the family by doing their own work and by making enough for the whole to uh, live on, subsist on. So this is what we have. So this is part of the culture that's going on. So Mary's invited into the house. They're not uh, sleeping together. She has her own place, but she's becoming part of the family. And we know that Joseph was this carpenter by trade, according to Matthew chapter 13. But the town of Nazareth was a small town. And it was probably small enough that carpentry wouldn't be all that he did. Uh, carpenters and other tradespeople would keep a garden. They'd have a couple of uh, other animals for food. Perhaps they would do some subsistence farming to eke out a living in this uh, agrarian society. So when townspeople needed you know, some carpentry done that was beyond their own skills and tools, Joseph would be the one that they would call on. And as a rule, you know, a man built his own house eventually. 
probably with the help of his family and neighbors, and a family would obviously have some sort of knife and some sort of hammer of some kind, but a carpenter would possess those specialized tools, some of which were actually fairly expensive at that time, and he would have the skills to use those tools. Now, some of us, we go to Home Depot and we specialize by purchasing those skilled tools, but we have no clue how to use them effectively, right? But Joseph did, and it's quite interesting because archaeologists have discovered many, many different types of tools which would have been used. Now, these tools themselves, a skilled carpenter would fashion doors, he'd do beams, perhaps gates, he would make plows, he'd do yokes and other wood implements. There was no Nazareth furniture store, so all furniture was handmade, Um, but carpentry didn't make Joseph wealthy. Think about this. Not by any means. The offering that Mary and Joseph brought to the temple on the occasion of Mary's purification after childbirth was the offering of a poor man. Scripture tells us it was a pair of doves or a pigeon in Luke chapter 2. So carpentry was Joseph's world, but it was also the world that Jesus would eventually grow up in. Now let's get back to our story. During this betrothal period, Mary gives shocking news that she's pregnant. And I think the, the beauty is Scripture's clear here in our current passage, and and even more so in Luke chapter 1, that this occurred before Joseph and Mary uh, consummated their wedding. Very clear. So talk about trouble. With those shocking words from Mary to Joseph, we can only imagine how his world began to fall apart. Can you imagine for a minute how painful and embarrassing it was for Joseph? Never mind Mary at this point in time, but just think about Joseph's perspective. And this is actually the first time that we see him. And what's he doing? He's planning a divorce. What would it have been like to hear this from the girl you just married but haven't been allowed to sleep with yet? And naturally, Joseph doesn't believe her. (laughs) All right, the Holy Spirit, yeah. The Holy Spirit got you pregnant, right. Yeah, yeah. I bet you have some waterfront property near Babylon you, you want to sell me too, right? Right. How can an unmarried, young, teenage girl become pregnant? <laughs> and of course, what happens is that we just naturally conclude that Mary was guilty of infidelity and or adultery. And like I said earlier, a crime that's punishable by death according to Deuteronomy. But what is really interesting in all this, when we're reading the scriptures, the Bible itself doesn't present the virgin birth of Jesus as a myth, as a fable, or as a legend. The Bible presents the story as a historical fact, a supernatural act of God whereby he invades space and time and comes to live in the midst of his people. And to truly understand this passage, we have to trust what the scriptures teach. We must understand that Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, that God had literally done the impossible here. And I think it's safe to say that Joseph was feeling betrayed and he was hurting, and you can bet that many tongues in this small town were wagging furiously with the news Mary's pregnant, Mary's pregnant. Couldn't Joseph and Mary wait? You know, they know better. 
And Joseph had been deeply embarrassed by the whole incident. He knows he's not the father. He supposes that Mary has had an affair with somebody, unless, of course, she was raped, but she had not said anything of the sort. So the only conclusion that this guy can come to is to reach out that she has been unfaithful. And so Mary's pregnancy now has placed her at considerable risk in this society. Her betrothed husband is going to reject her. Her pregnancy would embarrass him. It would reflect on his character. And she couldn't expect him to understand or accept her condition. And so because of this news, at worst she would be stoned. But at best her family maybe would allow her to live at home. Though through supposed adultery it would hurt their standing now in the community. She and her bastard child would be shunned. And no upstanding man would ever marry her. Since that stigma of her supposed adultery would remain with her and taint the reputation of any husband, she had nowhere to go. And she couldn't go to the city and, and sort of try to be lost in its anonymity because single women just didn't live alone. This was a family-centered culture where a woman's work centered around the home, centered around the family. There was no work for single women except perhaps as a housekeeper in a wealthy home or simply prostitution. So Mary's prospects are incredibly grim. She had agreed to the pregnancy, remember? She said yes to the angel in Luke chapter 1. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled, is what she said. But now the cost of this decision. You hear that? We make decisions, and now there's costs. And the cost of this decision has become painfully apparent. However, the grace of God now comes into play. And in verse 19, we get a glimpse of a truly remarkable person of Joseph and his character. Scripture says, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Matthew's very clear. He says that this Joseph guy is righteous, which probably meant that he carefully observed the law, his faith, he valued his reputation. And according to the customs of that time, adultery would have made Mary unmarriageable. So by marrying her, he would compromise himself in the eyes of the law and in, in his faith. And he doesn't have any details yet about Mary's pregnancy, and he assumes that she's been unfaithful. But Joseph decided not to make a spectacle of her. And his righteousness obviously went deeper than just a mere external righteousness before Jewish law. It was a character. Without question, he loved this girl. But now there's a chink thrown in here. The, the, the armor is messed up. He was honorable. He wanted to do the right thing. Can't marry her, of course. Since he knew, he knew the baby is not his. But instead of a messy public trial, he decided to divorce her quietly. And he had simply write out a certificate of divorce. He would present it to her in the presence of two witnesses, as was required by the law. And then it was over. And so Joseph decided to divorce Mary. But to actually do it in a way to protect her as much as he could, 
given the situation in which they find themselves. And so we see in Joseph this man that we really don't know, but we see a gentleness. We see a love and a compassion. We see a maturity about him. A righteous man. Not full of himself. But really a man who's seeking to do the right thing. Exhausted. Hurt. Simply because of the intensity of the situation, Joseph falls asleep. And as he sleeps, God begins to speak to Joseph. And his decision to act is divinely intercepted by God. And it's changed. And we pick it up. It says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. What we see here is that God, because here we have a righteous man, a man who's looking to please God and all that he does. God now gets real personal with Joseph. And he sends this angel to Joseph in a dream. And the angel addresses, and, and we miss this, the angel addresses Joseph as son of David. This is the only time in the book of Matthew that this expression is used of anyone other than Jesus. God is reminding Joseph of the royal line that he's a part of. He's informing him of the significant role that he will play in the arrival of the long-expected Messiah. And then the angel encourages Joseph to take Mary as his wife despite the social stigma that's going to be attached to him for having a pregnant wife before the betrothal period was over. And then the angel of the Lord informs Joseph of this miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. And he declares to Joseph, it's going to be a boy. And then he tells Joseph to name the child. Name the child Jesus, Yeshua. And it's interesting. Joseph is commanded to personally name the child. Again, remember he's called son of David. The only time that that term is used other than to Jesus in the book of Matthew. Now he's commanded to personally name the child, which again is deeply significant. It means that with Joseph in naming the child, Joseph naming the child now acknowledges him as his own son and thus becomes the legal father of the child according to Jewish law. And as a result of this legal adoption, Joseph's ancestry as a descendant of David transfers also now to his legal son. So biologically, Jesus is begotten by the Holy Spirit and thus is the son of God, but legally he is the son of Joseph and heir to the promises of David, Joseph's ancestor. And this is how Matthew explains it all in his book. Now, Jesus is not an uncom- you know, was not an uncommon name at this time since you know, the, name, the Hebrew name Yeshua is a shortened form of the word of the name of Joshua. Again, Joshua, one of Israel's most celebrated heroes. But the significance of God's insistence is that 
he be named Jesus. Not to, not to honor a national hero, but because of the meaning of the name. Yahweh saves. And the angel tells Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. And so Jesus' name from the time he was a baby was to indicate his mission. And both Mary and Joseph were, were given this name by the angel so neither would ever forget who he was, that Yahweh's salvation embodied in human form. And so as a baby, Yahweh saves. Might have been born and raised in the most humblest of circumstances, but that would never diminish who he was. And you can ask the question, well, what's in the name? I would venture to now say when we look at the name of Jesus, there's power, there's majesty, there's glory that are found in his name. There's healing. And that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess and worship at that name. And yet there's something more special about that name here in this birth account. The angel cuts to the heart of the matter when he says, for he will save his people from their sins. And seeing the Messiah as, as Savior was the popular Jewish understanding of the Messiah's role at the time. But the angel made it very clear to Joseph that this salvation would not be political, this salvation would not be military. But Jesus' mission was not to overthrow the Roman oppressors or reinstate a Jewish kingdom. His mission was to save people from a far more insidious enemy, sin. And so Jesus came to destroy the power of sin. And the angel's message is complete. And Matthew steps in, he begins to explain all of this in terms of an ancient prophetic word. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's quoting Isaiah 7.14. It's original setting, actually. Isaiah is exhorting King Ahaz, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, who's facing a threat of the siege from the northern kingdom and its allies. At the time, it's at war. And Isaiah is telling Ahaz not to fear, but to stand firm in the faith and a sign. And as a sign, the Lord says, a virgin will conceive and bear child and be called Emmanuel as a reminder that God is with his people in times of trouble. Some believe that the reference is to some child born in Isaiah's day. Others see it as a brief prophetic insight, a glimpse into the future of a child who will be born to a virgin and bring God's very presence to deliver his people. So then Joseph wakes up. And he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and, Mary, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave them the name Jesus. Again, we have, it's interesting, when you study Joseph, we see we have a record of God speaking to Joseph three times, and then each time it's through the angel of the Lord appearing to him in a dream. Matthew 1, 20, 2, 13, and, and uh, verse 19. It's bizarre. And so the angel come, talks to him in a dream, and, and each time Joseph wakes up, and he immediately, immediately obeys the messenger. And so we read here that Joseph wakes up, he obeyed. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Obedience is God's love language, and he honors those who practice obedience. As any father expects his children to obey him, God expects our, his, our obedience as his children. And not only does God expect our obedience, God is honored when we actually obey him. 
the, the same Joseph that was pondering how to act upon the news of Mary's pregnancy, we, si- we, we suddenly find him leaping into action. And we see that Joseph set a model of obedience that would be wise to imitate in our own lives. He's not just simply an aspiring hero of the past, but a compelling example for us in the present. His obedience was immediate. Isn't that interesting? His obedience was immediate. There was no delay. There was no pondering the decision to obey or not to obey. There was no debating the consequences that were about, but simply active obedience. And, and, and did Joseph understand that uh, everything that was being asked of him? Well, of course not. But then maybe he didn't have to. Because when God gives us something to do, we should be doing it. Whether we understand it completely or not. He accepted Mary as his wife. He took her home. Scripture's clear. Didn't have sex with her until after Jesus was born. Did he have normal marital relationships with her after Jesus' birth? Well, the Protestants see verse 25 as evidence that Mary and Joseph lived together as husband and wife after Jesus' birth. They bore additional children together since there's no suggestion that Jesus' brothers and sisters in Matthew 12 and Matthew 13 were not also children of Mary and Joseph. Just throwing that out there for thought. But the final things we learn about Joseph happened a few years after Jesus' birth. And let's consider them briefly. First, after the wise men came to, to worship Jesus and had tipped off you know, King Herod as to the presence of a possible rival heir to the throne. What does the angel do? Appears to Joseph in the dream, commands him to flee. Joseph obeyed immediately and left in the middle of the night for Egypt. And it was a good thing he did, because within a short time, Herod's soldiers slaughtered all the male babies in Bethlehem. After Herod's death, when it was perceived that the threat was over, Joseph brought Mary and the child back to Israel. Where did he go? He didn't go back to Bethlehem. Where did they go? They went to Nazareth. And even then, he was careful not to return through Bethlehem, since Herod's brutal son now reigned in the territory of Judea. So he brings the family back to Nazareth, and in spite of what the scandal still might remain, because people talk, right? He goes home. And it's in Nazareth now that he lives. And it's here where Jesus is now raised. It is here where he teaches his son the trade of carpentry. And the scripture tells us nothing of Joseph's death, though presumably... He's not living during the time of Jesus' ministry or Jesus would have not felt the need to entrust his mother, Mary, uh, and her care to his beloved disciple on the cross. But what we learn from Scripture about Joseph is that God chose this man. Think about this. God chose this man to father his son, Jesus. Joseph was a, a person who was devout, who was full of faith, who was obedient to God, who was just, who was merciful, and one who loved and carefully guarded both Mary and the child, Jesus. And so what's our takeaway this morning? I think the Christmas story of Joseph reminds us what the fact that to actually follow Jesus is quite difficult. You know, there's a great irony in the Christian life that following Jesus propels you into a life that is simultaneously the most joyful and yet the most difficult life on earth. Jesus promised us life more abundantly in John 10, 10, but he also called us to pick up our cross and follow after him in Matthew 16, 24. 
Thomas Merton, he wrote this. He said, sooner or later, if we follow Christ, we'll have to risk everything in order to gain everything. We have to gamble on the invisible and risk all that we see and taste and feel. But we know the risk is worth it because there is nothing more insecure than this transient world. And so Joseph and the walk of faith that the Christmas story drew him into, one that required the strength of character, it required obedience to a, a mystical encounter with an angel in a dream. It required a willingness to take risk based on what he heard in that dream. Waking up, staying awake to, to the spiritual reality of what was unfolding in his life. Saying yes to faith required uh, Joseph to make brave choices in response to the revelations of God's will, really, for his life, and it put him in a completely different path than he had planned, ever planned. But yet, it placed him squarely in the middle of the greatest story ever told. And with Joseph, we not only see a man who's devout and who is compassionate, but someone who's a deep person of faith. Someone who's willing to trust God despite how painful the circumstances they find themselves in are at the moment. And here we see a trait of a person that God could use. And God speaks to Joseph. And Joseph listens intently. And he listened in a way that pleased God. And also I, I, I look at this and I, I see that Joseph was willing to believe the best. In the midst of hurt, pain, and chaos, he believed in Mary's love. He did. He acted on it, and he returned that love. He believed in her integrity. He put his reputation and honor on the line as he came to her side. Think about it. He believed in her purity. He even took her as his wife. He believed in Jesus' destiny. He became a father to him. And too often, we're ready to believe the worst about people, are we not? And even if the worst is true, we may not know all the contributing factors or circumstances. The fact of the matter is, God is the judge who knows all. And when we set ourselves up as judges, we usurp the place of God. And because of Joseph's exemplary ministry of the fatherhood of Jesus, Jesus had a proper concept of fatherhood. And Jesus' most precious revelation of God as our Father, I believe, is directly related to that. And we need to be reminded that Jesus' master story, the parable of the prodigal son, is really more about the parable of the loving father. So what is God trying to tell us from this minor figure? Minor figure, I say, in the nativity drama. I wonder if God desires for all of us, when we read the story of Joseph, that we would have his character. You know, the scriptures are to read us when we read them. You know, does God desire to have the character of Joseph? You know, was it his righteousness that led Joseph to love God's law and to desire God's will in every situation? His compassion which tempered his understanding of the law by giving priority to love and mercy over that of judgment and retribution. He could have been nasty on Mary, but now he, he was going to do it with love and mercy. And his faith, which allowed him to trust God and make those difficult decisions maybe that you and I would never have to make. I also wonder if God wanted us to have Joseph, 
Joseph's confidence and faith. I think one of the most striking things about Joseph's story is that he was not one of the main characters in the story. He wasn't. He, he was simply a supporting role in the truest sense of the word. And yet his choices mattered so much to the overall picture. And I sometimes wonder if we think that our ability to walk in faith doesn't matter all that much. Maybe we think we can play it safe, let others take all the risks, and it won't affect anything. But Joseph's story tells us that nothing could be further from the truth. Here's a guy who just seems to be a supporting actor, but without him, there is no story. And his story tells us of our willingness to take the journey of faith, and that journey of faith literally affects absolutely everything. It tells us that the walk of faith will require something of us, perhaps more than we thought we were capable of. You know, Joseph didn't sign up for this, but he entered into it. It also tells us that when we say yes to the walk of faith, that we too can find our place in one of the greatest stories ever told, the stories of God's purposes lived out and through our simple existence. He is living through us, and we too can experience God with us like we have never experienced him before. We too can recognize the coming of the divine into our hearts and call his name Jesus. And finally, I wonder if God wants us to have Joseph's care. Care for other people. Which I think is so fitting why we're doing this world visions today. You see, when we look at the story of Joseph, the sideline character in the scene, what does he do? He stood in the gap for people in need. Specifically Mary and the baby Jesus. He stood in the gap. And yet this is what God is also asking us as believers to do. You've heard me repeat this over and over again from this platform. It's one of the best things, too, that we can even now do at this Christmas or any other time of the year. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the walk of faith requires that we are faced with the choice, the choice to get up and to do what the Lord has commanded us to do. Because knowing is not enough. God's love language is that obedience. Doing is what matters. And just as Joseph was honorable and, and, and he wanted to do the right thing, I pray that you and I would follow his footsteps every day of our life as our faith walk. And I'm convinced that God wants us to have Joseph's character or a portion of it in some way, have his confidence, his care for people, that we too can be stand-up people, a stand-up person, even in the times of trouble, wherever we find ourselves, putting our trust in God, but at the same time, stand in gap for people in need. A couple of years ago, many of us in this room made a commitment to sponsor a child through World Vision. I, I still remember this day clearly. Let me just bring you up to speed real quickly if you don't know what I'm talking about. I was preaching through Matthew, and we came to the, the uh, place in Matthew where it basically talks about um, you know, you know, visiting people in prison and all this other. We did a Matthew challenge, and it just brought to light everything. And we partnered with World Vision, and they said, hey, look, we want to we experiment on Soul Sanctuary. I said, sure, go ahead. Everybody else does. And so they said, we are going to um, allow kids, we're going to do something different, we're going to allow kids to choose their sponsors, as opposed to the traditional way of you going out and finding a table and picking a child, and you chose that. And we said, okay, let's try, what's this going to look like? Well, 
you're going to preach, and then um, we're going to make a call to the people, and they're going to get their pictures taken, and then you are going to get on a plane, and you are going to fly to Kenya, and uh, we're going to set up something like this, and we're going to allow the kids to walk forward, pick their sponsor, and then we're going to come back the next Sunday. I'm trying to calculate what do you mean flying and, like, what are you talking about? And we're going to come back the next Sunday, and we're going to put them all up, and then we're going to call the people up by name, and they're going to pull out, and they're going to see which child chose them. So that Sunday when I preached the initial invitation about, you know, will you please get your picture taken, and I remember finishing and sitting down. still chokes me up. Because I never know what kind of response I'm going to get from people. And I was talking with with, uh, Chris Schrader from World Vision, and I said, okay, Chris, like, is there a goal? Is there something that would make this event, you know, worthwhile? Because I don't want to fly halfway across the world with only three, <laughs> three pictures in my hand. He says, well, you know, Jerry, if we can get 25, 35 kids sponsored, that will be worthwhile. Every, every, every child's worth it, but that would, that would be a really good target goal. Well, roughly 160 kids later. I remember sitting here, afraid to go into the atrium. Chris had to drag me in to see all of you lined up, participating in a need. And, and that's who we are as a church. We want to impact globally. We, we do it locally with Living Word, and I'll get to that in a second, but we do it globally as well. And all this with, with World Vision, this is not coming out of the church. This is coming from you separately. And so I remember we flew to uh, Tavetta and we, we set it up and I watched kids pick their sponsors. I watched my guy pick me and Sharon. And there were some incredible stories that were behind it. And then coming back here and doing this and on that Sunday calling up your names and watching you guys come and, and pick off a card and open it up and seeing who picked you and watching your emotional responses was fabulous. And so Chris said, well, what can we do? And I said, well, let's, let's do something just to remind. So I'm speaking to you sponsors to remind you of the difference that you're currently making right now. And, and uh, it was an act of love. It was an act of sacrifice on your behalf. And I say, thank you. And for me, it was a moving time. I think it was moving for everybody who was... Who was involved, and even today, it brings back emotions. And so today, if you're a sponsor, you're going to receive a card from World Vision as you leave. It's going to look like exactly like this, and in it is a card, and uh, also one of the things that's on, on your desk. Take that, um, and I, I want to encourage you. The reason we're doing this is to simply put, I'm, sponsors, I want you to write your kids. I know many of you do, but some of us don't. So take some time, write, write your name, you put the name of the child on there, you put their ID number on there, and you say who it's from. You write a message, you can put a picture in there, you can, if you have other children, you can put a drawing in there, and you bring it back next week, and next week out in the hallway, we're going to have this set up, and you're going to take your little thing, and what you're going to do is we're going to be able to put it up here. And then World Vision will take it, package it all together, and it's going to send it all to Taveda. And they're going to get little Christmas gifts. That's one of the reasons why we got the, cam- the video camera too. Because we had staff members out there who are, who are getting into the front lines. And for them to hear from you and from me 
a simple word in eight seconds of thank you and Merry Christmas lets them know that they are not forgotten. Is that not love in action? Is that not loving our neighbors as ourselves? Is that not being a practical Christian? If you want to respond financially, maybe you're going, hey, this is cool, but I don't, I don't, I'm not a sponsor. Hey, that's fine. Just take the little QR code. You can actually give onto that little QR code that says respond, and all the money that it goes goes to education and battling COVID there because it's far more worse than what we are ever even thinking of. So you can give. You can contribute. You can make a difference, even if you're not a sponsor. And if you do want to sponsor, Chris is going to be out by the cameras, or one of the World Vision staff is just looking for a person with chosen. And if you're going, look, I'd like to sponsor. I want to be involved in this. Then go ahead and sign up. But this is a reminder for all of us who sponsor our kids today that we can say thank you, that we can say we're thinking of you. And like I said, next week, bring the card back, and we are going to ensure that your child, your sponsored child, and in some cases, for some of you, children, will get their messages. And it's an act of love. I honestly believe that we can easily fulfill this Christmas season. Easily fulfill. So will you please, if you're a sponsor, please do that. Another act of love that we can easily fulfill this Christmas is what we call, and Piper made mention of it, our giving tree. And I had my little tag, and where did I lose it? Well, come on. Hmm. I pulled a tag off of two liters of juice. Anyway, we have our tree out there, and it's going to what we call the giving, uh, the giving tree is go, goes to Living Word Temple. And so it represents uh, what is needed in our inner city church this Christmas season. Historically here, we've always done hampers, and after talking with Pastor Paul, We've agreed that stocking the food bank is going to be far more valuable for the community as a whole than providing hampers for selective families. And Paul is, is wholeheartedly behind what we're about to do. So if you're able and you'd like to go on your way out, go to the giving tree and then pull off a purchase and purchase the item on that tag and bring those items that you've purchased back next week. And once all those items are received, we are delivering them to Living Word and it goes all into their food bank. And like I said, the one that I pulled off was a two-liter um, a two-liter uh, thing of juice. So it's very easy. So if you want to be really selfish and greedy, you can pull as many tags off as you want. Just make sure to purchase them and bring them back. Maybe you're saying, dude, I'm not, not, not going to go shopping. I, I hate malls, blah, blah, blah. That's great. You can give. And if you just go online to our normal giving pattern, you can give to Living Word. And uh, all the money, 100% of what you donate goes, and we'll take that money. We will buy food and put it into the food bank. So that's it. You know, we're giving everybody at least one option to practice love in a tangible way today. So God cared enough about you to give you Jesus. Can you care about, can you care enough about somebody to give them a piece of you? Do you want a piece of me? Yeah. Yeah. A piece of you. You're the most valuable Christmas gift. And personally, I want to thank you for all your giving to both the, the children of Kenya as well as the folks in our inner city, but also here at Seoul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Joseph who proved worthy of your trust to raise Jesus.
Lord, my prayer is that you would give me a 21st century mind and a 1st century heart, like Joseph. God, that you would help us be as believing, as faithful, and as zealous as Joseph was to take on the various tasks that you assigned to us. We just commit ourselves to you in your name. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? Again, as World Vision hands you out a card, if uh, uh, you can also not just write to your child. If you don't have a child and you take a card, you can actually write to a staff member, and you can just say thank you for all you do. There are links of videos of the interviews that we've done and updates of what's gone on in, in Tunio and Taveta that you can see what the staff are doing. You can make mention, I saw this video or I did this, and I just want to say thank you. I don't know who you are. I'm praying for you. If that is your gift, that is your ministry, please feel free and do that. It just costs you some time. Bring it back next week. And like I said, we'll make sure we get it out there. There's still the video out in the hallway that you can film and say thank you to the staff out there and to some of the pastors that are doing the work. And again, remember our giving tree. So, after the blessing, if you're able-bodied and you can help us stack chairs eight high, I'd appreciate it. But in ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So here it is, soul sanctuary. May God who began the good work within you continue to be at work in your life. Soul Sanctuary, may he bring everything to completion on the day when Jesus comes back again. And soul, may your love for others overflow more and more. And may you keep growing in your knowledge and understanding. And may you grow in character. May you grow in confidence and faith. And finally, soul, may you grow in the care of other people. Never forget what really matters so that you may live a pure and blameless life until Jesus returns. Be blessed, live the church, and we'll see you next week.